Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour on Sabotage, Deceit, and Duplicity, Big Tobacco in Africa. And welcome to this brave new world of Twitter spaces for many of us. It's an exciting new platform that allows us to bring public health and public health discussions closer to people in an interactive format. And this Twitter spaces, we have each week to discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. And to vital strategies, that means everything that surrounds us, everything that makes good health possible, that can mean clean air and water, it can mean access to medicines and healthy food and places to get exercise. It also means uh, culture. It means removing barriers to health like bias. And, and as we'll explore today, it also means commercial determinants of health and the power of corporations that are shaping this environment around us that 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 shape the potential for our health and our choices. And we know this has really never been a more important conversation. COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated the cracks that we have in our systems and that we have so much more to do to protect people's health. My name is Steve Hamill. I'm Vice President of Policy Advocacy Communication at Vital Strategies, and I'll be your facilitator today. We really want this space to be for people who want to reimagine public health so that it's the center of commerce, social, and civic life. And we're here to learn about different areas of public health. So I hope you join us each week um, where we look at individual issues, but we also look at the big picture. And we've had a lot of fantastic discussions over previous weeks, including health equity. We talked about the war on drugs. We visited the United Nations General Assembly, what to expect uh, for this week. If you've missed these episodes, you can list, listen back on SoundCloud by visiting soundcloud.com slash vital strategies. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover here on the Power Hour, drop us an email at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. This week, we're centering our discussion on a groundbreaking new report coming out of the tobacco industry watchdog STOP that's stopping tobacco organizations and products called Sabotage, Deceit, and Duplicity, British American Tobacco Uncovered, that exposed shocking new information about how British American Tobacco, or a BAT, seems willing to do almost anything to perpetuate tobacco use in Africa. And we'd like to introduce our panelists. We've got three great panelists and warm up the discussion with a segment we call Health News of the Week. We ask each panelist to share a news story that caught their eye recently, and we'd be happy to hear from you. We, we have about 10 minutes for this segment. If you want to share, please request, click the request to speak, and we'll bring you up to share an article or topic that caught your eye this week as well. Um, I'd like to introduce our first panelist um, of three, Jorge Alde. He's Vital Strategies Director of STOP the global tobacco industry watchdog. He's a communications and policy expert and integrally involved in crafting the release of the groundbreaking report we'll be discussing today. Welcome, Jorge. Um, what article caught your eye this week? Hi, Steve. Thanks for, for inviting me and for, for hosting this this session. It's, it's a really important one. Um, as far as news last week, the thing that really caught my eye uh, was not in one particular newspaper, but uh, was actually uh, reported quite widely, and that was... Um, speaking of the commercial determinants of health, uh, Philip Morris International secured its acquisition of a company called Victura in the UK, which is a maker of inhaled medicines and devices. It's actually the latest in a string of uh, pharmaceutical acquisitions by Philip Morris International, and this one is particularly brazen. 
in that it now gives PMI uh, the opportunity to profit both from the hundreds of billions of cigarettes that cause a range of diseases that it sells around the world, and the medicines to treat those diseases. Um, it sets a dangerous precedent uh, and opens the door for Philip Morris uh, International to claim that it is a health company, um, and that gives it inroads into into government, into policymaking circles, despite the fact that it produced more than 600 billion uh, cigarettes last year. So it's pretty shocking um, that uh, this uh, this went through, and a lot really resides on um, the Victoria board, which basically decided that it's okay to sell the blood bank to Dracula. That's great, right? I, the, the, the tweet that caught my eye about this, somebody said, this is like somebody breaking your leg and your legs, then turning around and selling you crutches. It, it's really disturbing. Um, I agree. And thanks for bringing that into the space. Um, Rachel Katonu Devetsuz is our next guest. She's the McCabe Center's Regional Coordinator for Africa. She's an expert in policy and law and an advocate who's worked across a dozen African countries, including training more than 150 lawyers and policymakers, recently honored by WHO on World No Tobacco 2020 for her leadership in global tobacco control in this space. Rachel, welcome to this discussion. Do you have an article you'd like to share with our audience today? Hi, Steve, and hi, everybody. Um, my article is one that appeared in the Kenyan press um, about um, the UK's recognition of uh, foreign vaccination certificates. And so the UK is saying that it will not recognize vaccination certificates um, that are issued out of the UK. And uh, this has caused a bit of controversy here in Kenya because the government is trying to ramp up vaccination and encourage people to be vaccinated. And so for them to hear that their certificates are not going to be recognized, and uh, this came hot on the heels of news that even doubts were being raised about um, the vaccines being issued in Africa, yet they all come from abroad. And particularly in Kenya, we all use AstraZeneca. So if they won't recognize their own vaccine, then many people are asking, what is the point then of vaccination, particularly for those who hope to travel? Wow. Thank you for bringing that. I actually hadn't heard that. And I think it's so valuable and um, troubling to hear um, news. Um, that's the next level of equity we're talking about. First, first level equity is getting uh, vaccines into countries, making sure everybody can get vaccinated. And then this to, to understand that certain people will be cut off from the from you know privileges bestowed on on people who are vaccinated is that's really disturbing and tricky. Thank you for bringing that into the space. Um, James Ball is our final speaker today. He's the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, or TBIJ. His career has spanned digital print and television journalism in outcome including BuzzFeed, Guardian, and Washington Post. His reporting projects have won multiple awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. James, welcome to the discussion. Thanks for coming. Do you have an article that you'd like to share with the audience today? So I do, yes, and uh, very nice to be here. I'm sort of quite alarmed about um, the article Rachel shared as well. It uh, had never quite occurred to me that um, people might take the UK sort of just for admin reasons, not accepting other countries' vaccine passports as a sign there might be no value to the vaccine. That's really genuinely alarming. But um, the story I sort of saw this week that I wanted to share was in um, Stats, and it's um, it's sort of called The Brain Health Paradox. Dementia rates have fallen even as drugs have failed. And it sort of starts on quite an alarming note, which is that we've still had a 100% fail rate in new pharmaceutical treatments for Alzheimer's and dementia. Everything, everything that's got to trial in the 21st century has failed, um, which I sort of thought, oh, this is going to be quite an ominous tale. Um, but then despite that and despite aging sort of populations, um, dementia rates have fallen fairly dramatically, about 13% per decade in the US, Canada, UK, France, Sweden, Netherlands. Um, and apparently it's largely that we've got more a more educated population and that correlates well. Um, and better prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease. And so I thought it was quite interesting in thinking about the sort of broader health approach and how sometimes you can get good outcomes in slightly less direct routes. 
so yeah, that's that's been on my mind this week. That's fascinating. One thing I love about this segment is that 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 we we get exposed and we hear stories we don't normally, and that to me that also speaks to our larger mission. Many of us on this call, and I see allies in the audience of thinking about prevention and understanding that um, you know prevention is about social determinants and social determinants here it seems like it can include education include social supports that actually prevent dementia in the first place rather than thinking about a sort of more curative um, approach to dementia that's fascinating thanks to each of you for bringing those perspectives and those stories into this space um, and into the awareness of our listeners here um, i'd like to um start on our big topic today of, of the STOP report and the coverage that flowed out of this report um, and then and then what that means in the region and potentially around the world. Jorge, maybe we can start with you. Before we even get to the findings and the, and, and the content of the report, can you set the frame here? Um, you know, why is monitoring the tobacco industry a component of public health at all? Sure, Steve. Um, so, I mean, it's it's no secret, right, that uh, tobacco use kills 8 million people every year. Um, it has a massive in, um, environmental toll. It has, also has a massive uh, economic toll. Um, economists estimate it could be up to $1.4 trillion of annual losses related to, to tobacco use. Um, but progress has been made. This is actually a, in a big picture. Tobacco control is a, is a success story in public health. And um, as of 2020, the WHO reported that 5.3 billion people are covered by at least one of the gold standard policies um, they, they suggest for reducing, reducing harm from tobacco. But the progress and further progress to actually reduce that harm uh, that the industry is calling is, is actually the tobacco companies. They're driven by profit to sell more and more cigarettes and to introduce new products. Um, and they have vast resources to deploy a range of tactics that can delay, weaken, or even uh, derail entirely uh, measures that governments are trying to put into place to, to help their, their, uh, their populations uh, thrive. And so that's why STOP was formed, right? To monitor the industry globally, to identify patterns of activity, uh, to warn policymakers and consumers, and, um, and to expose industry efforts that uh, undermine public health. And so that's kind of the the the, the backdrop to, to these these reports, um, which were uh, there. So there are two two extensive reports that were um, conducted by uh, researched by the our partners, the University of Bath. Um, there were the first report, uh, which was right, rightly reported um, in uh, through a um, a story on the BBC last week, was. Um, essentially looking at British American tobaccos, um, extensive efforts to create a, a surveillance network that's alleged to have been used to, to disrupt competitors across South Africa uh, and Zimbabwe. Uh, and the, the second was uh, an investigation our partners at the University of Bath uh, conducted, um, which identified nearly or more than $600,000 worth of questionable payments across 10 countries, which may have been used to influence policy um, and, and disrupt competitors. And together, what they what they do is they, they illustrate um, the lengths that just one of the, the major tobacco companies is willing to go in order to sell uh, to sell cigarettes in Africa. Fascinating. Can you tell us briefly, you know, how what, what kind of data sources this is really clearly a really specialized area of uh, public health and industry monitoring. What kind of data are you looking at? Do you, you know, can you share a little bit about how that, how, how that gets it? Um, and also it, it seems like, you know, this report uh, or maybe initial pieces of, of data kind of kicked over a rock and have ex exposed a whole nest of issues and bugs more than possibly could be followed. Do you know, you know, what was that first piece of data, that first indicator that, that maybe led to the, the avalanche of other sources? Well, uh, I, mean, I can start, and I'm sure uh, James, who at uh, the, the Bureau, was um, also involved in, in a parallel investigation looking at similar similar information. Um, but essentially, you know, this, this comes from uh, leaked internal documents uh, from, from British American Tobacco, uh, from some brave individuals uh, who are um, – 
basically speaking out um, and uh, blew the whistle on this activity, uh, both on the the, the payments, uh, which were uh, initially reported in, I think, 2015, uh, and the, the activity in, in South Africa, which was um, came to the fore more, more recently. So the the stop analyses are, are document driven right um, so they're uh, but corroborated through uh, through other public information um, whether it's in court documents and filings uh, whether it's through uh, through interviews or media reports or other information that's publicly available um, the stop team essentially uses that type, that level of evidence um, to put the pieces together and I'm sure James can speak more to sort of the, the techniques and the, uh, the the work to kind of dig into a topic like this because it's it's extraordinarily difficult. That specialized, difficult, and not something they teach in uh, you know medical school or when people are getting their MPHs. James, I, I mean, TBIJ took these this data and really, I mean, your reporting was I'd, I'd say blistering, um, really fantastic. If anybody didn't have the chance to read it, to go back and look at TBIJ's website and the reporting around this. And one of the things that I thought was so great about this reporting was it blended the big picture with this kind of spy novel type first person accounts of what was happening, you know, uh, you know, in, in countries in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, the picture that was painted. Maybe can you share big picture before we talk about some of the details, what picture do you think is painted of uh, BAT's corporate practices, practices in South Africa and, and elsewhere in the region? Um, I think I think it certainly raises a lot of questions. And one of those questions is why the SFO in the UK hasn't been asking some of the other questions. Um, you know, within these documents, and it's such a huge scale of sort of material behind this, um, you know, as, as was being said, there were multiple uh, quite brave sources in some cases, some anonymous, some on the record, uh, which led to us eventually getting around 250,000 documents. Um, and sort of going through those and piecing together a story is always quite difficult. Um, but this sort of revealed a network of something like 200 informants and really seemed to raise questions as to whether what is always pushed as, you know, efforts to help compliance, to help tobacco control, to prevent smuggling, really actually was being used to just try and preserve market share. And that's got, you know, concerns for competition and in the industry and maybe from a public health perspective, we don't really care too much about that. But the sort of more specific issue is if a lot of tobacco control work isn't actually really about tobacco control, but it's sort of mutual corporate espionage, that means that tobacco control will be less effective. And we know that if smuggled cigarettes, et cetera, can be around, smoking will be higher and smoking will be cheaper. So people often smoke more. And so there's real direct consequences to this kind of bad behavior. And I mean, the other sort of key thing for me on that big picture level was because we had such a rich set of documents, we could do what's often quite a painstaking trail and see that often some quite senior people within BAT would know what these field agents were doing. This wasn't just a sort of, you know, like with phone hacking back in the day, they initially said one rogue reporter. This clearly wasn't one rogue subcontractor or one rogue person. There's really something quite systemic about what was found. And I want to follow up uh, in a minute to ask you to describe, for those of us who don't know, what the SFO um, is and what role it plays. But before we get to that, can you um, paint a picture? What Was there a particular story um, that caught your eye as egregious? You know, what was literally happening in these countries that 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 is remarkable? It's, um, I mean, I, I work as an editor, and so what sort of happens every now and then in my day as a reporter will just suddenly drop in something going, hang on, I think we've just seen X in here. And um, I sort of had a real, and usually it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, chase it down, that's interesting. Um, but when you suddenly hear the words Robert Mugabe, uh, you sort of tend to pay attention. And um, 
it was initially actually one of the researchers working with the University of Bath, but then we worked with him and studied up that um, agents working for BAT at one stage were sort of brokering and discussing whether to pay a bribe of about three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars um, to to Mugabe. Now we don't know whether the sort of we don't actually know for sure whether it was paid or not, and so we can't say they definitely paid a bribe. We you know we don't ever go beyond what we can prove. But I think the fact of the discussion of it shows the sorts of worlds they're operating in and how they're operating in. Um, given, you know, the huge concerns around dealing with him. Yeah, and I, I mean, I also was struck by the some of the reporting I read that that alleged that, you know, that the surveillance network um, that, that was described, it had access to government cameras, footage from government cameras to monitor, you know, their competition, and then were able to sort of deploy government or urge the government to deploy... <laughs> deploy security agents to delay trucks of competitors that were trying to deliver cigarettes. I mean, really, really remarkable activity happening on the streets and roads of, you know, and in, in the halls of power in Africa um, and across several governments. Um, Rachel, I just want to bring you into this conversation. I know, like many advocates working in tobacco control globally, we often hear stories like this about undue and even corrupting influence of the industry and government affairs. Um, but sort of at the same time, it seems to be happening in the shadows. We rarely see it kind of documented um, with this kinds of precision. You've been working in this region of the world in Africa for a long time. Did anything about this report surprise you? What stuck out? So um, yes and no. No, because this is not the first time BAT has been caught involved in corruption. And so talking about Kenya, for example, when Kenya was um, drafting its uh, tobacco control legislation around 2003, 2004, uh, BAT took members of parliament to a resort at the beach, basically to try and bribe them to water down the language. And the story leaked because while the MPs were cavorting on the beach, one of them broke their legs. And so I'm not surprised that BAT engages in corruption per se. But I think, yes, what was surprising about this report was the sheer scale of the behavior. So it's one thing when you're in Kenya and you're thinking it's just Kenya where they do it. It's another when you've got a report like this that shows the same company in 12 countries, the sheer number of incidents and the amount of money involved and the number of public officials that were being corrupted and then the corruption was not just interfering with tobacco control policy, which I guess is par for the cost for them, but then actually using um, state instruments to undermine competitors. And the reason why they needed to undermine competitors is hard to understand because in most parts of Africa, BAT is actually a monopoly. So in South Africa, it has 70% of the market share. In Kenya, it has about 90, 92% of the market share. So really the question one has to ask themselves is why would they have to go to these extents to undermine yet they are such a behemoth on the African continent. And so it just shows you the sheer impunity of this organization that thinks that they can get away with whatever they are doing. And unfortunately at the moment, it looks like they've gotten away with it. Yeah, I, it, it is disturbing. And I know you, you've spent, you've had a successful career advising governments and helping build their capacity in, in the legal arena, particularly. What do you think, what would you like to see in terms of the response of South Africa and other countries that have been mentioned or cited in this reporting in this report? What should, what should advocates ask for? What should governments do in response to this, this picture? So starting with South Africa, the whole idea of a state capture, uh, which seems to be um, a, a thread that it's not the first time happening in South Africa. So I think people have heard about uh, the Guptas, which was uh, um, two brothers and uh, had high level corruption inside the government. And so BAT now being added to the list of other entities that seem to be participating in state capture in South Africa, I don't think the South African government can ignore this. And so unfortunately, um, very often, even here in Kenya, where again, it's not the first time where there's a British corporation that's being accused of corruption. So in Kenya, um, BAT has not been prosecuted, 
but there was an instance um, of corruption around election materials. So the scandal was called Chickengate, and this was a British printing firm, Smith & Usman, um, that paid kickbacks worth up to 50 million in Kenya shillings. And so though they were prosecuted in the UK and the directors of Smith & Usman were, were, were jailed, in Kenya, nothing happened. And so I think the message to the African governments is that we cannot afford to allow this to continue. It's not good enough to just say we are cooperating with the Syria's proud office or with other UK prosecutorial agencies. I think it's high time the African governments undertook their own investigations and did local prosecutions. And the reason why the local prosecutions are so important is not just so that we can hold BAT accountable, but then so that we can also hold accountable the people on the African end who are receiving this money. And so if the Syria's proud office does not has dropped the investigation and the African governments do not run their own investigations and prosecutions, then BAT gets away with it. And that further builds that whole sense of impunity that they can do stuff like this and get away with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of accountability and, and local prosecution, there was a great quote in the coverage that this isn't just a, you know, South African or African scandal. It's a London scandal. BAT is based in London. Um, James, you mentioned earlier something about the SFO in the UK. And I think uh, that has to do with that. Can you build upon that? Like what what should happen in London and the UK in response to this kinds of coverage? What questions should be asked? And And, you know, is that you mentioned a previous incident with the SFO? Can you dig into that a little bit for us? So yes, um, of course I can. It's um, as as we sort of covered with the BBC with the Panorama yesterday in the coverage. Um, I should stress actually, I'll get in a lot of trouble. I haven't plugged our podcast yet. Um, in terms of this sort of scandal, you've got these huge systemic things, but you've got people whose lives were completely torn apart by it, and um, the team decided to try and tell the story in a much more sort of connecting week by week way. And so our podcast is called Smokescreen. I will tweet it out after this spaces as well. And there are two episodes already up and another six to come. And we will be talking about the SFO quite substantially in a later episode. Um, but for now, essentially, the SFO looked into some of this scandal, um, not least because some of it was uh, seemingly ordered out of London. and they essentially decided not to do anything about it. Now, they have stressed that isn't sort of like a acquittal or there's nothing there. They just said it didn't pass their evidentiary standards. Um, the SFO is very, very underfunded. It spends a lot less on its investigations than the companies it investigates spend opposing them. Um, and so it really ends up being quite a timid organisation. Um, but um, what it seems to have been thrown up in, in sort of even the weeks since these reports first came out, has been the um, SFO, sort of it becoming clear the SFO hadn't spoken to several of the whistleblowers that were on record and saying they were totally happy to speak with the SFO and had evidence for them and, um, you know, will be could could get them further and it's sort of a bit unnerving when you know we as journalists or researchers we don't have power of arrest or compulsion you know if the sfo thinks its budget is small ours is much smaller um you know and we could find things they seemingly haven't it doesn't inspire faith in their three-year investigation and so there are calls for them to reopen it and to try and get back into it and that I think would be completely reasonable as if the BBC and the Bureau and Bass and the other places that worked on this apparently all beginning with B can find more than they got it doesn't seem that they looked hard enough that the coalition of bees right that that are that I mean it's really remarkable that 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 it's civil society academia that it uncovering this this information um, I mean this this BAT report is is a, a huge scandal. Um, Jorge, I, I know STOP has produced many reports looking at data from all over the world. I'm wondering if, if you can share with us, um, you know, what does this tell us about the tobacco industry more broadly? Would we, you know, I assume you, 
the evidence shows that this kind of activity is happening in Latin America and Southeast Asia, elsewhere around the world. Um, is that true? What 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 has that seen about uh, that? What has stopped seen about uh, the tobacco industry culture and and activity around the world? Sure. I mean, well, thanks to the the I mean the evidence in these reports. I mean, as as Rachel was saying, um, they they show a scale, right, of, of of activity. It's not it's not just one one individual or even one one subsidiary. And these are these are vast companies that operate in. Dozens and dozens and dozens of, of countries, um, and there's a there's actually a well well worn playbook of of tactics used to um, to undermine to undermine policy around the world, and um, it's it, it, the same the same activities get replicated country country by country, um, and they adapt and they change as uh, as policies change or as um, as things are exposed, but um, they really just get revised in many ways, and so I think it's important that um, first that that we raise the consciousness of this this activity because it's often happening right before our eyes, right? Um, and I think at Stop, what we depend on is that the networks of of people that are in the halls of power, that are on on the ground, looking at the at the, at the retail shops, talking to policymakers. Um, and helping us identify, you know, what's going on in one market because it helps us um, identify the patterns across uh, multiple markets and to uh, to alert um, about emerging behavior um, and to to help kind of um, help counter those those tactics as they're playing out around the world. Yeah, I, I want to spend a few minutes. Uh, I, our audience um, is largely public health professionals, people interested in public health. And this is such a specialized um, and uncomfortable place, I think, for many people who work in, uncomfortable, in, in, in public health, not familiar with thinking about commercial drivers, about, you know, you know taxation, illicit trade. Um, and, you know, this report delved into different types of evidence, different types of conclusions, but it, but it also requires a special kind of journalism. It involves legal risk, um, it involves exposure to the tobacco industry, and they're not shy, we've seen, about using their legal muscle. Can you talk a bit about what it takes to put out this kind of report and coverage? I know it's grueling. Um, James, maybe we can start with you. So, um, I would say a lot of time, a lot of work, and a lot of lawyers. Um, the key thing with something like this is we we need to be right. If If we're careless, if we're sort of sloppy if we go beyond the evidence we know that big tobacco is litigious and a lawsuit could you know we are not a huge organization a lawsuit could incapacitate us um if you know if we've been reckless or lost so we we really really try and make sure have we looked at the evidence right you know is there another explanation for it can we do extra corroboration um, and then we also, uh, and then we have an independent fact check process. We actually have a staff fact checker who will literally, you know, if if someone says, uh, you know, the moon goes round every twenty eight days, they have to provide a source. Um, and so we we do that, and then everything goes through lawyers. Um, but also anyone who is sort of named or faces an allegation against them in this kind of report gets a chance to respond to it before publication. And so people have a chance to say, hey, that's wrong, or no, you've misinterpreted that, or this was fabricated. And we do reflect some of that. And so it's quite a specialist set of skills to be able to do it. And um, sometimes it can sort of mean, you know, the version that you read is what we could prove um, there's often sort of tantalizing extra things and so on. Now, sometimes that can lead to stories being really quite dry. But, you know, with this one, what we could absolutely sort of prove and cop the bottom and get past all of those processes, there's still bits of it that you just look at and you go, God, how did, how did this ever happen on this scale? I, I, so I do just think this is a remarkable tale. Um, but yes, you know, and each organization, I, I should say as well, has had to separately work on different kinds of fact check and legal process. So 
it it has been a, a, a fairly I, I i i was going to say slog but that sounds really downbeat so let's go for herculean efforts I love that because I, you know, it is Herculean effort because the, it, it's to those of us following tobacco control and corporate influence that the, the, the reward was worth the effort. Um, Rachel, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, working with governments that, you know, uh, across, you know, many different issues about this, uh, this issue of legal intimidation of, uh, you know, of the power of the industry to, to kind of, silence or baffle what, what people are hearing. Is that something that, that you've heard from your colleagues in working in government? So one of the, the things that we do is uh, we build legal capacity uh, for government officials working in tobacco control. And as part of the convention secretariat, there are also several other knowledge hubs that have been set up among different thematic areas. And so what we've come to realize over working with them is that very often when you're dealing with the Ministry of Health, very often many of them are medical professionals. And so sometimes when they hear threats of lawsuits and they get scared, um, when the tobacco industry talks about uh, trade and investment cases, they get scared because these are things they don't understand. And so what we've realized is that we need to be able to build capacity, not necessarily to turn them into experts, but to give them enough to know that um, when the tobacco industry says this, it's crap. And I think the reality is that um, the threats of litigation, even when they do actually go to court, I think the tide shows that most of the time government wins if they do the legislation right. And so the same way um, the investigators who did this report um, took some legal safeguards to try and make themselves litigation proof, What we tell these um, public health officials is that, one, you've got an office of the attorney general that is staffed with lawyers. Um, There's lots of people in civil society who can help. And then we tell them that also tobacco control is a multi-sectoral issue. And so we shouldn't just be bringing in medical medical people. We need to be tapping into economists in country, uh, journalists, and so on. And so also a lot of work has been going on in the tobacco control movement to bring these other professions into the fold. And so for almost any issue, you can find um, an expert who would be able to help uh, and um, the help is available. And so what I tell them is do not feel afraid. It is basically a scare tactic. And for most people who have been taken to court, if they did the process right, um, then they have they have succeeded. And so I think it's a, um, there's also a knowledge hub, particularly on Article 5.3, And so just seeing how we can build um, further capacity um, to investigate, to prosecute, and then to reach out beyond the Ministry of Health and Public Health organizations to organizations in all these other fields who can assist. That's great. And, and, you know, Hori, I also wanted to pivot to you to to address this area. You know, the tobacco control is a public health um, area, as, as Rachel said, the solution is multi-sectoral, and we're often talking to people who are leaders in the, in the health field. How do you um, get, you know, experts more comfortable with the world of uh, industry activity, of industry monitoring and economics? And how do you think we can have, help health experts become more conversant and comfortable in the industry monitoring and working in this area? I mean, first I'd say come, come to stop. We're here. <laughs> we're here. We're here to help, and that, and that's that's what we do. I mean, I think it's um, it's absolutely right that to, to if the if the vector for this particular part of public health is a business, then we have to understand the business, right? Um, and I don't think that the expectation needs to be that um, you know every public health person working in this area needs to have have an MBA. Um, but they do have the 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 eyes the eyes on the ground, right? They they understand their local context, their local laws, and if they see something, um, then that is um, say a, a violation of an advertising restriction or a, a, a parent, um, you know, a, a magical change of a draft of legislation <laughs> from one iteration to the next. Um, those type that type of activity is likely um, has been seen before and is likely being replicated somewhere else, right? And so, what we would suggest is come to us because we can actually help um, analyze and help counter that activity, right? We see it very much as a um, as the watchdog function is actually to provide that service, right, to those in the field who might have deep expertise in 
say, the, the tracking and tracing of, of, of tobacco tax stamps, <laughs> right? It's a very, very specialized area. Yeah, I like that, uh, the, that, that we can all be engaged in collecting the pieces and parts of the of data to, that may create, you know, taken together may create a, a mosaic, a larger picture of what's happening, help us understand a larger um, pattern of activity. You know, as Rachel said also, we, we often feel or our colleagues often feel that what's happening in their country might be just happening in their country, but there's a playbook here. Um, isn't that right, Rachel? Yeah, actually, um, one of the things that uh, concerns me, um, and going back to an earlier question that you asked about um, this kind of corporate behavior, is that when you look across um, other industries, so you've got, um, of course, big tobacco, which we are discussing here, but we've got, you know, big food, we've got big alcohol, and increasingly at advocacy in country, when we are trying to get policies also on these issues, we find that they're using big tobacco's playbook. And so what then is scary is that um, if this is the next um, trick um, in BAT's, in BAT's um, book, so initially interfere with tobacco control policy, now you start um, interfering with your competitors. What happens if the others also copy this um, as they copy all other things that uh, BAT does? And so um, that's for me, that's one of the things that is scary. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, the very big picture is really disturbing, even beyond tobacco control, that a global company would be engaging in this kind of business practices would never be accepted in their, you know, home country or in the country where their, you know, stock exchange is hosted. And it has a kind of corrosive impact that that could be replicated by other industries that, that are pushing unhealthy commodities or pushing um, policies that could be bad for public health. James, I'm wondering if, if TBIJ sees, is, sees indications of that you know, playbook being used by other industries. It's, um, I think, particularly the sort of private intelligence and the sort of surveillance aspects are getting more and more common as we see across sort of all sorts of stories and areas. Um, we sort of cover the surveillance industry through a separate project. And, um, you know, we've we've seen signs of, of that being involved in everything from, you know, industrial competition and, and disputes to things like the kidnapping of Princess Latifah. And so some of this playbook clearly extends beyond there. And I think that those sort of issues around the exportation of these behaviors, I think is is a real matter of concern. You know, I don't think these ever get done just in one area. Um, I should say though, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily other industries solely learning from um, big tobacco. I think there's probably some flow in the other direction too. Um, so, you know, while while these are pretty egregious examples, um, there may be an element of, um, you know, Cosi Fantuti, they all do it. Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, both of you are speaking to the larger issue of, you know, corporate drivers, corporate behaviors. Um, and then I think that suggests as public health professionals and advocates, we also need to elevate to de-silo, you know, our own thinking um, and not talk just about tobacco control or just about alcohol control. Rachel, I'm, I'm, Turning to you again, because I know you, you, you work very closely with, you know, people grappling with this in a number of countries. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions? How can we as public health people speak to the larger picture that's clearly, you know, having impact across various different issues um, and, and not just within tobacco? Um, so, as I said, um, when we, 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 we look at this as just um, a health issue, I think we have it wrong. And so tobacco control is one public health issue that cuts across more than just health. And so when you're talking, for example, about um, smuggling, so obviously we've got a public health reason why we would not want um, cigarettes to be smuggled, which would be that then they create um, affordable and accessible cigarettes to people and increase the smoking rate. But for something like illicit trade, it goes beyond that because then you're talking about tax evasion. When you talk tax evasion, you're talking about uh, ministries of finance and revenue. When you talk about illicit trade, um, it has got links to organized transnational crime. And so now you're even going into matters of national security. 
And so um, as public health uh, uh, people who work in this space, we then need to reach out to all these other arms of government so that this issue is not just seen as, as a health issue. And so one is um, certain basic competencies, because very often um, when health people speak, say, to people in finance, so whether it's about illicit trade or whether it is about tobacco taxation, they look at us as if we don't know what we are saying. And so we then need to build some basic competency in terms of the jargon. Every, every field has its terms of art, so that at least when we speak, we, we are seen to know what we are talking about. And so just broadening how we think about these issues. And I think maybe even COVID-19 is something else that has shown us that a health crisis is not just a health crisis. It can become an everything crisis. And therefore, then um, everybody needs to be involved. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And one I'd like to dig into a bit. Um, you know, everything in health is, is, is related through, is being seen through the COVID lens now, very rightly. You know, it's exposed cracks in our, the systems that protect us. It's exposed the great inequities. Um, and it's also, on some level, um, it's taking up all the news and policymaker attention. Um, so this, I'm, I'm wondering, both in terms of this huge story that we've been talking about, but also in terms of next steps, how does COVID change the landscape of either the acceptance of this story or the, or the behaviors of industry or the ability of, of governments to react to this really, um, you know, groundbreaking report? Um, Jorge, maybe I'll start with you about what you just stop. Um, have you seen anything about, um, you know, how COVID has affected industry practices? Has it opened up more opportunities for this kind of alleged behavior? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's uh, there's real risk here. I mean, so be before the before the pandemic, uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, we had um, you know this global tobacco epidemic, right? Um, and that continues, right? <laughs> it's perpetuated by addictive products that cause cause harm right and that didn't stop because uh, of, the, of the pandemic in fact what it did was um, in some cases it gave um, it gave distracted attention right from um, advancements in measures to reduce tobacco use because an, another urgent kind of public health crisis was coming to the fore right and so um, tobacco companies are able to take advantage of that. I mean, we've seen through our monitoring um, everything from kind of um, you know on, online offers to have products delivered, you know, to to people who are locked down, to lobbying of, of governments to uh, have cigarettes treated as essential items during lockdown, right? Uh, and and so the, the the work of the industry continues despite the pandemic. So what we're having right is is a tobacco epidemic layered um, with a, um, you know, another pandemic of respiratory illness that is um, potentially that causes that that can cause more harm if you are a smoker smoker um, than um, than before. I think maybe just to add that it also that because the, the tobacco industry and other big food, big alcohol also took advantage of COVID-19 in terms of increased um, corporate social responsibility. And so um, in many instances where CSR has been banned, then they came forward um, offering either masks or offering ventilators or just contributing money to COVID relief um, funds. And um, because governments were desperate at reaching out for help, then the same way um, BAT in South Africa was saying that they were helping the government with illicit trade, um, the industry also reached out and said, well, we can also help you with COVID relief and through that then build relationships that then they can use to interfere with policy. And so some of the knock-on effects we are seeing is um, then lobbying against tobacco tax increases, for example, again under the guise that COVID has affected our business and therefore you need to lower taxes so that our businesses can survive. It, it almost brings us in a way full circle to how Jorge started us off with uh, you know a cigarette company buying you know a health company you know and the tobacco epidemic propagated by these industries have made us more vulnerable made the world more vulnerable to covid and yet you know covid provides an opportunity for them to grow and extend their business through this kind of csr activity that you're talking about Rachel um, that's remarkable 
Um, James, I'm also wondering about about your world, the world of journalism and TABIJ's work in trying to uh, do these kinds of investigative stories and how COVID has changed the landscape, either, you know, you know, government's ability to react to, um, or to the receptiveness of this kind of story. It's, um, I mean, f- telling a lot of stories in the COVID era is difficult, especially early on, because when people are seeing a pandemic on the scale we've lived through, that's really all that they want to see on the news. Um, and so for a time, really, we were we just more or less threw every journalist onto coronavirus because that's what people would look at. Um, we did sort of get past that era, and we have found now, you know, people are in, interested in and want more stories and want these wider topics. Um, but attention, you know, really does now rely on them being very significant and of a, a you know substantial public interest. Um, and so this one's proven quite helpful. Um, in terms of sort of government response or our response, you know, it's it's difficult to cover things when you often can't travel. You know, you still can't easily travel out of the country, but for a while you could barely leave your home. And journalism relies on meeting people and talking to them and getting to tell them tell you things. So doing this story that spans sort of countries and continents would would have been impossible if we didn't sort of have a way of working that's adapted towards it. And it's accelerated things that we've been doing for a while and should have done more of earlier. And that's things like, you know, our approach is to try and work with people in each country that we're covering and team up wherever we can, rather than try and fly in from Britain every single time. Uh, you know, for environmental reasons, but also, you know, so that people who are on the ground every day and know what's going on are there. But so we could get the work done, but getting it in front of lawmakers and policymakers and sort of people who can do something about it is harder in COVID era. It's not impossible, but, you know, everything's just a bit trickier at the moment. Thanks. Um, with about 10 minutes left, a little less, if any of our audience members have a, a question they'd like to ask or a comment, please raise your hand, request the mic, we'll bring you up to the stage. Um, in the meantime, um, I guess I'd like to take the opportunity to delve into the personal for a minute. I, I think this this topic, this area is, is really a challenging one to have a career in. You know, we're facing this giant, this corporate behemoth that that sometimes seems to take, uh, you know, uh, two steps forward for every, you know, step we pull it back. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what gets you up in the morning? You know, how do you continue to push this, you know, sort of Sisyphean rock up the hill? Um, what motivates and inspires you? What might you tell somebody who's coming into this field or a young person? Um, Rachel, can, can I can I start with you? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a lawyer by profession, and initially I wanted to be a big litigation lawyer. I used to watch all the TV shows with um, the fancy lawyers in their suits and corner offices. But I think for me what tobacco control has shown me is that it's given me the opportunity to make impact. And so when a country adopts a tobacco control law, you affect 100% of the population with one stroke of a pen. And therefore, for me, it's given uh, meaning to, 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 to the practice of law. I'm not um, demeaning those who work in corporate law or even those who work in litigation. But for me, it was just the feeling that for Kenya with a population then of 40 million, that when we got the tobacco control law passed in Kenya, we'd at one stroke of a pen affected um, 40 million people at a time. So my personal motivation is changing my world one law at a time. And so as I've grown in my career and now working across, I mean, um, across uh, the continent and across, even across continents, just being able to see how when laws are passed, they meaningfully impact the lives of people. And so that's what gets me up each morning. And so despite the vicissitudes and seeing what the tobacco industry tries to do, each time a new country adopts a fresh piece of tobacco control legislation, it just empowers me to do more and more. That's inspiring. Thank you. James, can you share about a little bit about what keeps you at the grindstone? So, um, 
I can't I can't share anything quite as uh, inspiring uh, as that just was. But um, I mean, I think public interest journalism is just one of the most fantastic jobs you can do. It's um, you know I get to poke my nose in other people's business and I get paid for it, and we get to try and improve the world by doing so as well. Um, and so yes, I never struggle going into work. It's uh, it's it's a thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable job but you sort of you know it's it's all stuff like this and so you really have to keep paying attention keep on it so i don't think you could do it if it was a sort of you know if it was mainly about a salary it is i think a job that you have to love uh, does that resonate with you jorge um most people know someone who's uh, a smoker or or a former smoker um or someone uh, who who's been um, harmed by, or or who even lost to to tobacco use, and if if one person can uh, can avoid that kind of disease and uh, and harm, then it feels like the the work is worth it, right? Um, and so the, so there's there's that piece of it that gets me up in the morning, and then there's the piece. Companies don't have to behave badly. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't have to um, um, perpetuate harm. And so it gets me up in the morning to try to fight for that um, for a world where we have um, a business and thriving economy, but it doesn't actually have to come at the expense of people's health. Um, and so to be a you know a small a small part in that um, in that effort um, is rewarding in itself, and it's 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 pretty easy to kind of. Um, get up and, and, and do that every day. That's uh, great. Thanks, each of you, for sharing your, you know, what what you derive momentum from. Um, I think we've had an incredible hour talking about the scale and scope of the tobacco epidemic and the industry as a, the primary vector for that, you know, one of the world's leading killers um, and how this story of, you know, BAT's activities in, in South Africa and, and other countries, you know, exemplify, seem to exemplify kind of egregious corporate behavior by cigarette companies that are going to end up in, you know, millions of people being sector, you know, being sicker uh, and not less healthy. And that, you know, we need this multi-sectoral, you know, response that, that and, and as public health professionals, we need to learn to work with other sectors, learn to work with lawyers, with economists, with people who understand trade, to speak to, in, to be able to speak to those in the halls of power, and to urge, in this specific case, you know, responses from governments from South Africa, in London, from Zimbabwe. Um, I've learned a lot. I want to thank uh, each of you for being on the Public Health Power Hour today. Next week, um, we will have an excellent public health power hour and kind of a uh, related topic. We'll be talking about um, alcohol and public health uh, globally, and I'm sure we'll address industry activity there as well. If you're listening, I want to urge you to follow each of our speakers on Twitter and follow Vital Strategies if you have just popped in for the for the day. Um, and also, as James mentioned, TBIJ has an excellent new podcast out on this topic. James, where can people find that podcast? So it is called Smokescreen, two words, and you can get it anywhere, I think, that you usually get your podcasts. Um, and it's also all linked from our site, which is up at tbij.com. And I know that, Jorge, that STOP has resources for people who want to report industry activity. Would you like to, to share where people can find a way to contact you? Sure. You can um, email us at tips at exposedtobacco.org or come through to exposedtobacco.org. And there's a link called Speak Up, which will find its way to, to our team. Great. And uh, last but not least, Rachel Catonio, um, would you like to share how can people support or find out more about your excellent work and the McCabe Center's work across Africa? Um, so they can check the McCabe Center website, which is www.mccabecenter.org. Great. Once again, thanks each of you for being here and thanks to each of our listeners on the show today. 
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.